Right, well, last week, as we continued in this season of Epiphany that we've entered into, which is a season in which we're focusing upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, and as we said last week, not as some great prophet or preacher or teacher or counselor or comforter or miracle worker or healer or friend. He's all of those things. We'll see that as we work our way through his life, but we're focused specifically in this season upon the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world. And we saw that last week as we looked at the story of the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus walked down into the Jordan River and submitted to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins by John the Baptist. And we all kind of stopped and went, hey, wait a minute, why would he have to do that? Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. Hello, Tom, it's Epiphany, and he's sinless. So what's the deal with that? Why did Jesus do that? We talked about that. We said Jesus did that because we needed for him to do that. Because the reality for every one of us is that every aspect of our being is tainted by our sinfulness, and even our repentance is insufficient. It's not perfect. And we need to think in terms of perfect. Okay, that means we need a lot of help. And so last week we saw that this Jesus who entered into this world, guys, to live perfectly in our place, and then at the end of that, having accomplished it, to take upon himself all of our sin and imperfection. So he lived for us, he then suffered for us, he died for us, he was raised for us, and last week, as a part of that perfect life, we saw that he repented for us, and this week, as a part of that perfect life that he lived for me and you, he will face and defeat temptation, and he will face and defeat the tempter as well. What's happening as the life of Jesus unfolds, and as we move our way through this gospel of Luke, is we're seeing Jesus, who is our victor, who is our champion, who is our representative, getting everything that we've gotten wrong right. So that at the end of his journey, having gotten it all right, he can offer a perfect life in place of my guilty one, and in the place of yours. And so this week, as we come to Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus, and he is going to defeat temptation for us, and he's going to defeat the tempter himself for us as well. And he's not going to do this merely to teach us some things about temptation and how the tempter comes to us and all that, though that is incredibly valuable. We'll talk about that. We'll see that. That's helpful. And he doesn't just do it to show us how to defeat it, that is to say, by God's word. But we'll see that too. He does this because we need for him to. And the reason we need for him to is because we haven't. Instead of defeating temptation and the tempter, guys, again and again and again and again, I, you, everybody else have been defeated by them, but we have a champion. You see, where we fail, Jesus succeeds and in spades. So we pick up our story today in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, the author, says this. He says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, where, as I just said, He underwent that great baptismal experience, that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins, not for His. He doesn't have any. But where some other very significant things happened as well. Again, it's Epiphany. Son of God, Savior of the world, what else happened? Jesus comes up out of those waters. Jesus is praying on the backside of that baptismal experience, and God Himself speaks. The voice of heaven thunders from heaven and is heard on earth by Jesus, by John, by the people who were there. And what does the Lord God say? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, son of God. You see, but it was more than that. They didn't just hear something, they saw something. The spirit of the Lord in visible form like that unto a dove physically 
if you will, descends upon Christ. Okay, so Luke says, and Jesus, full of that Holy Spirit, coming off of that baptismal experience, returned from the Jordan River, and then Luke says that Jesus was led by the Spirit up into the city of Jerusalem, where he then went up into the temple courts, and together with John the Baptist and everybody who just heard God's voice and, well, literally saw God's Spirit, proclaimed himself to be the Son of God and Savior of the world, and that was the end of his mission. It's not what happens. He's going to tell us when he gets to the end of the mission. He's going to say it as he's dying on the cross. He will use the words, it is finished. And until then, he's collecting up every one of our failures. And he's succeeding everywhere that we fail. And so then Luke tells us that Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from that great baptismal experience that he had at the Jordan River, and that he was then led by the Spirit. Please don't miss that. God leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he remained for 40 days being what? Tempted. There it is, by the devil himself. And then Luke says that Jesus ate nothing during those 40 days, and so then when they were ended, he was physically very hungry and physically very weak. And physically, in that sense, I suppose, vulnerable. And so then it's that time, you see, when the devil, who up until that point had just been lurking about in the shadows of the life of Christ, looking for just the right moment, perhaps, of weakness, steps out of the shadows and into the light. And here's what he says, and notice the language. He says, if you are the Son of God, well then, temptation number one, command this stone here to become a big warm loaf of bread. And I think it's important to point out that in saying that, I really don't think the evil one is coming and saying, all right, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, well then prove it by doing this. I don't think that's it. The voice is thundered from heaven. The Spirit is physically descended. There's no doubt about who Jesus is, not in Jesus' mind and not in the evil one's mind either. He knows who Jesus is. It's far more crafty. He's coming to him and he's saying, okay, um, so since you are the Son of God, and since a few other things also, Jesus, since according to the will of your Father, you're not just fully divine, you're also now fully human. And since as a human, (laughs) I I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you're going to need to eat. Oh, and since by the will of your Father... You've been taken away from food. You've been driven out into the wilderness where there's nothing to eat. And since your father, who knows that you're fully human, and that if you don't eat eventually, you are going to die, has left you without food for all of this time, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Quit waiting for Him to show up and do for you what you can do for yourself. How in the world can you gamble something as valuable as your life Trusting that your father is going to provide for you something that he should have given you 40 days ago. Here's a nice sized stone. I know you haven't eaten in 40 days. Just turn it into the sweetest, most amazing, incredible, warmest, toastiest, most excellent, big fat loaf of bread ever. You're God. Fix it. Satisfy yourself. Meet your own appetites. Okay, so like, he is brilliant. That is stunningly brilliant. And you need to see how he works. So first of all, what does he do? He waits until you're at your weakest. Now just apply this to yourself. He waits until you're at your weakest. You're like, well, when is that? Well, let's start with what are you hungry for? Because therein lies the weakness. 
God, if I had to say that I was starving for something right now, it would be I am starving for what? Attention, affection, to be valued, to be noticed, to be appreciated, to be celebrated, to be seen, to be significant, to feel like my life matters. I am starving for this, this thing that I'm supposed to well, find in you, but I'm not feeling it. So he waits until you're at your weakness, or weakest, and then he shows up and he gathers up, now don't miss this, all of the God-ordained circumstances of your life, and that's what they are. It's certainly true for Jesus in this story. It's true in our stories too. But I mean, think about it in terms of him. His father, according to his father's design, he becomes truly human. As a truly human being, he needs to eat to live. That's a problem. According to his father's design now, he's been deprived of any kind of food for 40 days. You see? And so what the evil one does is he waits until you're at your weakest. He then steps out of the shadows of your life. He steps into the light. He gathers up all of the, admittedly, and we've got to own it, God-ordained circumstances of our lives. God's sovereign. He's ordained it. That's for real. And then he gives you his interpretation of it. Therein is the lie. So he comes and says, all right, let me tell you why you're starving. Simple. God is unfaithful. Why is that not a reasonable interpretation of the circumstances of your life? Let me give you another one. The reason that you're suffering, it's easy. God doesn't care about you. Oh, he says he does, but not really. Why is it that you're wilting away? Why are you so hungry and afraid that if you don't satisfy that appetite, you will perish? and you will perish, he will say to you, it's because the Lord doesn't really love you. And then he ties it all up in a nice little bow, and he comes along and says, how can you trust a God like that? Good grief, he should have met this satisfied this appetite for you 40 days ago. Or maybe you're going, no, it was more like 40 years ago. Okay. Here's what you need to do. You need to take your life back out of the hands of that God. And you need to do for yourself what you really, he says, can do for yourself. Go satisfy your own appetites. Live for you. And our appetites, guys, are the single most powerful part of every one of us, particularly our instinctual appetites, meaning our appetites that propagate the species, i.e. sex, or our appetites that we need to meet unless we're going to die. You see? And that's what he appeals to for Jesus. It's like he comes to him with the single most powerful appetite he possibly can in a moment in which he is starved of what he needs literally for life. Not enjoyment, not a meal for comfort, but to live. And he tempts him in that. I have caved for far lesser things than eating to live. I don't even know what that's like. But Jesus succeeds where I fail, and you as well. And so then Luke tells us, verse 4, that Jesus answered Satan, and he said this, it is written, the question then being, well, where is it written? The answer is, in God's Word. In God's Word. And in this case, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which has a context. It recalls that season of time in the the nation of Israel in which the people of God in the Old Testament were also in the wilderness, and not for 40 days, but for 40 years, and yet you see the correspondence, don't you? You're meant to. Jesus certainly saw the correspondence. 
He's identifying with those people who were out in the wilderness. And how did they live? From whence came their food? It came miraculously from God who provided for them just what they needed day by day by day by day, the bread from heaven called manna. And he's saying, no, no, no. I trust in that God. And in fact, this verse in Deuteronomy indicates that the whole purpose of that deal was to teach the people of God the very thing that Jesus now quotes, that man shall not live by bread alone, but instead, as the rest of that verse in Deuteronomy makes clear, by every word which comes from the mouth of the Lord, which means that Jesus is resolved to trust in the Lord and in His Word, even when His life does, in fact, hang in the balance, even when He is, in fact, suffering, even when you can take the circumstances of His life and twist them up and turn them around and present them in a way that makes God look bad and Jesus look forsaken. It's the way it works. That's what He does to us as well. And so then, since that doesn't work, Luke says in verse 5, And the devil took Jesus up to some undisclosed, elevated place and showed him, now get this, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, clearly in some kind of a vision. And then the devil said to him, temptation number two, To you, Jesus, I, Satan, will give all of this authority and their glory. I'm going to give you the world, Jesus, for it, meaning the world, has been delivered to me. Now, when you did your personal worship this week, did you stop there and scratch your head a little bit on that one? I mean, how do you not get to that and think, man, I don't know who made that decision, but they should be fired. I mean, how did that go down in that board meeting? You know, uh, well, next on the agenda is the idea of giving the evil one the world. Um, can I get a second for that? I mean, really? That should strike you. How does that occur? Well, who gave it to him? Well, who's the only one authorized to do such a thing? Who is the true owner who can hand it over for a time? if indeed he desires to do that. Because he sees that in the end, it will actually be good. Now there's a mouthful. God made the decision. The question is why, and there is a lot to that conversation, but I think in part the answer goes all the way back to the reason that God created the heavens and the earth in the first place. And we are all of us broken, and we are all of us egocentric, and so we tend to just kind of assume that the reason He created the heavens and the earth in the first place, well, was for us, right? I mean, but no. He created the heavens and the earth in the first place for Himself, and since He is the greatest good that exists, I don't think we can criticize Him for that. And He created them to create for himself a vehicle through which, or a stage, if you will, upon which he could display the many wonders of his being. The various facets and attributes of his glory. And the reality is that apart from the existence of evil in this world, there is so much of God that we would never see and there is so much of God that we would see that we would never appreciate. So think about it this way. You don't know warm and appreciate warm and enjoy the warmth until you've been freezing. Wouldn't you say? I mean, you could walk out and if all you ever knew was warm, you'd go, well, it's another day that's warm, you know, and it feels kind of nice. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. I'm not sweating. There's a nice little breeze and that's great. And I'm enjoying it, but I hardly notice it. And you know why? <laughs> because I've never been freezing. You know hot, you know warm because you know cold, you know up because you know down, you know heavy because you know light, you know good, and what is God? 
infinitely good because God has ordained that you also know evil. You know forgiveness and mercy and grace and all of the wonders of the gospel, this whole side of God that is open and that we will celebrate forever because you also know sin and wrath and justice and judgment and all those things we don't like to talk about or think about. You know beauty because you know ugliness. You know selflessness because you know selfishness. You know healing and the value of life because you know sickness and the pains of death. You know love because you know hate. It just keeps going. God has ordained a world in which we see and know all of these experiences that we might for forever, and that's what He's created us for. Worship and serve Him better for the so much more we've seen as a result of it in this life. And so then, God who does not have a board that He consults with legitimately gave to the evil one the world for a time. It's under His influence, clearly. (laughs) Watch the news. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't argue with that statement, does He? He doesn't go, oh, you know what, that's ridiculous. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You and I both know that's not... No, this is a valid offer. That's what makes it tempting. If it wasn't valid, it wouldn't be. And so then the devil took Jesus up to some undisclosed, elevated place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and in some kind of a vision is the idea. And then the devil said to Jesus, temptation number two, here it is again, to you I will give all this authority in their glory. Jesus, I'll give you the world for it has in fact been delivered to me at least for a time. And I give it to whom I will. But then of course, here comes the condition. If you then will worship me as opposed to your father, well, then it will all be yours. Translation. Hey, Jesus, you and I both know from the word of God that obviously you value and know well because you just quoted it to me a second ago, that your father has promised you the world. But you and I both know as well that you are going to have to suffer infinitely and die to obtain it. That you on the cross will suffer not just a torturous death physically, but that you in your own soul will experience the full and infinite weight of the wrath of God for every single infinitely awful sin that every person who puts their faith and trust in you has ever, will ever commit. That's what you have to experience to get the world from that master. Ah, but I am a far more merciful Lord, I'll give it to you for free. No suffering, no cross, no wrath. Whole world, yours. One condition. That you turn your back on your father for just a few seconds. It's not going to take long. That you fall to your knees before me. That you, my creator, will now worship me a created thing. You do that, you get it all. No suffering. It's brilliant, isn't it? All right, it's the same stuff that he comes to us with. He comes to us and he says, hey, you know, take a look at your life. Look at all of the demands that God makes on you. Look at all the sacrifices that you have to do, all the things you have to give, all the time you have to spend, and for what? Don't do this, don't do that, suffer this, suffer that. Come on, it's all good. And then he promises you, and this is so convenient from his perspective, an eternal reward that you're never going to see in this life, ever. So, yeah, that works out well for him. 
God asks way too much of you and deprives you of way too much. He causes you to suffer things that if you just turn your back on Him, you would not have to suffer. And so I'll give you everything you're looking for, and I'll give it to you now, no wait. But here's what you have to do. You have to turn your back on your Creator and fall to your knees and begin to worship created things. So worship money and and try to satisfy yourself with that. Worship sex and try to satisfy yourself with that. Worship even really good things. Not that those are bad things, but, but good things. Worship your marriage. Make it the ultimate thing. It enslaves you and destroys you. Worship your kids. Make them the thing that life is all about. What do you worship? What are you willing to turn your back on God in favor of? What is it? Who is it that you cannot live without? It's very destructive. We all do it. We've all done it. But where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And we see that again. Verse 8. And Jesus answered the evil one, and he said, It is written this time in Deuteronomy 6.13, that you shall worship the Lord your God and Him, and I love the next word, only, Him only shall you serve. So having failed twice, the evil one offers his final pitch in verse 9, where Luke says this, he says, And the devil then took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which I take to be one of the corners of the temple mount, which is elevated really above the city and above a bustling part of the city. It's a very public location. You can see him up there is the idea from down here. And he said to him once again, if you are the son of God, temptation number three, then throw yourself down from here. And here again, Satan, I don't think is questioning whether or not Jesus is the son of God. He's questioning whether or not God is going to be faithful to his son. Because again, he's left him out there 40 days. He hasn't eaten. You get the idea? Gathering up the circumstances, painting God as bad and Jesus as all alone. I think he's saying to Jesus, look, here at the outset of this ministry that you're about to embark on, wouldn't it be valuable, helpful to you? I mean, kind of empowering for you to know that God is, in fact, on your side in all of this, that he's going to have your back, that he's going to be with you in all of this, because it's kind of in doubt. I mean, you're off to a rather inauspicious start, Jesus, with this whole starvation diet thing that you've got going on here. So here's the deal. Force his hand. Make him prove that he's in it with you, and then it'll just be a cakewalk from there. Much, 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 much easier for you, knowing that that's the deal. And here's how you can do it. I I, I even have a plan for you. It's brilliant. And by the way, since Jesus, you love the Word of God so much, and you know it so well, let me use it to tempt you. I'm going to quote Psalm 91 to you. For it is written in Psalm 91, so here's the way that you can test God. That he, meaning God the Father, will command his angels concerning you, Jesus, and that he will do that in order to guard you. And more than that, God also says in that same psalm, Jesus, that on their hands, meaning on the hands of these angels, they will what? They will bear you or lift you, or you might even say they will raise you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so, jump off, come down from here to the crowds below, and make him prove that he's with you in this. Jump off. His angels will, you know, grab you midair, I guess, and usher you down to the streets and the crowds below who clearly will see all of this. So a little side benefit for you, Jesus, is this, that, I mean, when the angels appear in the sky and they catch you and usher you down to the street level below, 
I mean, in all likelihood, they'll just proclaim you Son of God and Savior of the world, and you know that will obviate the cross again for you if you're looking to get out of that. So go for it. Okay, so the problem with that, and there are many, among others, the problem with that is that Satan not only brings up a scripture to the Lord, but he interprets it for him. Now think about that. And his interpretation of that psalm, it seems, is different from that of the Lord's. I think for the Lord, the angelic bearing up or lifting up or raising up is one that speaks of the day of his resurrection. There's a removal of a stone. There is the exposing of the fully alive and risen Jesus. The angels left behind with the folded clothes who bear witness to those who come to the tomb looking for one who is dead but who isn't anymore. And so it's kind of striking that, that Satan likes to not only gather up the circumstances of your life and give you his interpretation of them, but he likes to gather up the scriptures which are to govern over your life and give you his interpretation of them as well. And his interpretation of them will always be vastly different from that of the Lord. And his interpretation of them, it seems to me, is one that allows you to get out of whatever inconvenience and whatever suffering, obedience to that word would otherwise cause you. And when that's the case, his interpretation is really, really tempting. But where we fail, he succeeds, and he succeeds for us here at the beginning of his ministry. Throw yourself down, Jesus. Come down, you know. And he succeeds at the end, too. I mean, when you fast forward all the way to the end of his life, it will say here, two verses away, that the evil one will leave the Lord and he'll look for a more opportune time. When is that? It's when his suffering is, is at its max. It's when he's dying on the cross. And what are the evil people around him saying? If you are the Son of God, they say, come down from there. Come down from the cross. So then in verse 12, it says that Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry answered Satan, it is said, and this time it's said or written in Deuteronomy 6, 16, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so then when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until, there it is, an opportune time. And so then the, Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, who lived for us, suffered for us, died for us, was buried for us, risen for us, was Tempted for us too. That's part of that perfect life that he offers on that cross. He succeeds where we fail, and he was tempted not just to teach us things about temptation, not just to show us how to defeat it, but because he knew that if he turned that stone to bread, he could never be the bread of life for me and you, and he knew we'd need that. If he submitted to these temptations, gave in and said, I'll take the world without the cross, there would be no Christians forever with him to share it. He endured these temptations, faced their full strength, and defeated them for us. It's a beautiful thought. It's an amazing, amazing feat. And so, you know, what do you do with this story? I, I think what you do is you stand before it and you allow it to examine you. You know, do like a spiritual MRI on you. And to point out, first of all, where you're vulnerable. 
and to point out, secondly, where you've failed, and then not to leave you in that despair, but instead to take you to the one who has succeeded on your behalf, that you might put your faith in Him and your trust in Him, and that you might follow Him. And so to help you do that, I'm going to ask you some questions. Question number one, what are you most hungry for right now? Like, what is that thing that you would do? And this is scary, isn't it? Anything to satisfy. Here's my hunger. What are you willing to do to satisfy it? It's a key, I think, to where we're weakest, to the areas that He'll approach us in. Number two, what narrative about God, your Heavenly Father, is the evil one writing for you right now in your heart, based upon the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of your life, by which he is making God look bad and you look all alone, abandoned, forsaken, so that he can then come and go, you know what, how can you trust this God? I mean, just look, just look at you. How can you trust him? How can you live for him? He's not here to help, he's not here to satisfy, so you better take it into your own hands and start figuring it out. Question number three, what created thing do you value and worship and serve above the Lord your God? Or to put it differently, what are you willing to turn your back on God in favor of? Or what have you turned your back on God in favor of? Number four, in what ways are you asking God to prove His faithfulness to you before you will simply believe His word to you that He is indeed faithful? How are we called to live as Christians? Because it's not by what we see. It's not, hey God, prove that you're faithful to me and then I'll buy in. It's God, you are faithful. And even when the circumstances of my life don't seem to indicate that, God, you are faithful. And He is. Fifthly, how well do you know God's Word by which you are to live and by which you can expose the devil's lies and send him away? How do you know a lie when you hear it if you don't on the other side of that know the truth? How do you come to know the voice of the evil one? By coming to know the voice of the Savior. Where do you find the voice of the Savior? By His Spirit and in His Word. And then you can begin to distinguish the two. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. I know better than that. That is a lie, and I know who's saying it. It's not the one who lived and suffered and died and rose again from the dead for me. Undeserving me. Who has forever portrayed His love to me in a way that I cannot deny. And His faithfulness, my goodness, is beyond my ability to question. All right, lastly, how are you interpreting or misinterpreting God's Word to make it say something that will free you from its constraints or the inconvenience or the suffering even of having to obey it? Because that's what we want to do. So let this story examine you. Let it, you know, give you the spiritual MRI. You'll have to read it yourself. So um, the Holy Spirit will help you with that. And then it, let it drive you to Jesus, who succeeds everywhere that every one of us fails. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us uh, here in this world and in this life wallowing in our failure. Lord, though we deserved um, nothing from you, you gave everything to us. God, we praise you for the God-man, the one who is your son, 
fully God and fully man, revealed to us in this season, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, who entered into this world not merely to die as a sacrifice to cover our sin, but so much more, to collect up every way that we are insufficient and that we fail. And as our champion, as our victor, as our hero, as our substitute, to succeed in our place, a perfectly righteous life unlike any of ours and yet given over in our place that he might win us to you. Lord, speak to us through your word. Let it indeed examine us and then relieve the trauma of that examination by the healing balm of your gospel, by the reality that Jesus in fact has succeeded, that it is indeed finished and that his offering on our behalf, has been accepted fully and completely for you. And as such, we are clean and we are free. And Lord, help us by the power of your Spirit and in community with one another to learn as Jesus did, first of all, to see the tempter as he approaches, to hear his voice and know it when we hear it, to expose his lies by the truth of your word, and to send him packing by the power of a risen Jesus who lives within us by that same Spirit. So let us do these things for your glory and for the blessing of this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.